uh, you can open up to the book of Mark, one of the four Gospels in our New Testament, as we've been heading into our study of the book of Mark. Um, this is going to be a fast-paced and rich book in all the things that it deals with. I think you'll start to recognize just how quickly this book moves along. And so there is a lot that we're going to see in the Gospel of Mark. And the, one of the real benefits that we have uh, in the different Gospels is you start to see different aspects of who Jesus is, what he came to do, what he accomplished. Not necessarily a different Gospel, but different focus and here in Mark, he, he focuses his, us in on the work of Jesus very specifically. And so as we kind of follow along, we get the sense in which we really are following along as he continually says, immediately this happened, then this happened, then this happened. And so as we kind of start to watch, one of our big questions becomes, what is Jesus up to? As those who are watching him probably were wondering, who is this guy and what is he up to? And Jesus would start to help identify also who the people were supposed to be who were following him. So these two big questions start to emerge. Who is Jesus and who is man? What is mankind supposed to be? And this starts to get developed over and over. And Jesus just comes in, enters into the scene. He's baptized and here comes the coming of the kingdom of God. Jesus starts his ministry and we start to say, where will Jesus use his authority first? He's all of a sudden been given this authority by God. So what's he going to do? And we're left to watch and to start to listen and to say, I want to know who this Jesus is and I want to know what he's about. This is a good thing for us to do as the church is to start to look at the life of Jesus and his actions and start to frame our understanding about who our God is around these things. So let's do turn to Mark chapter 1, and we'll be in verse 21 through 28 this morning. We'll be reading from God's Word. If you are able and willing, would you stand with me for the reading of God's Word this morning? Mark chapter 1, verse 21. It says, And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching. For he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know you are the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed. So they, that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this, a new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. This is God's word. You may be seated. Let's do pray as we dive into this passage this morning. Father God, we do come before you humbly this morning. Lord, help us uh, to humble ourselves under your word, especially for those of us who've walked with you for a number of years and those of us who have not known you before. Help us to listen to your word, to see what you're doing, see what you're about, to understand even more this morning who our Lord and Savior is and the work that he came to do. Help these things not to be lost on us, 
to strengthen our souls, strengthen our faith, and to redirect our hearts where they need to be redirected. So Lord, we lift this up before you this morning. We pray that you would use your word uh, in our midst today. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the things uh, that starts to become very apparent is just the way that Jesus is using his authority. And there is some absolute claims of authority. And when you hear absolute claims of authority, our minds go to certain questions of how will Jesus use it. Uh, In North Korea, this was one of the questions that the North Koreans would have asked as well. When uh, Kim Jong-un became the leader of North Korea about 11 years ago. And you can imagine what they were thinking. They had been under deep oppression. In fact, many of them had been starved to the point of death. And it was just an absolutely awful place to live. And so obviously they see this new leader and they're wondering, what is coming? And many of them actually had hope with it, thinking this could be better. He is young. He's a millennial. He has some experience of the outside world, which none of them were allowed to think about or even uh, mention. And so they're thinking maybe this could be a good thing. And even one survivor who has escaped North Korea talked about it this way, just reflecting on the experience. He said, I could see how young he was, and I had hoped that maybe things were going to get better. We were given some rations through our neighborhood association. Even, we were even given some meat and fish. And at that time, when he took over, there was this sense of hope. And to us watching from the outside world, we're thinking, How could you have any hope in the middle of this? But they were saying anything different would be good. And for the people who are watching Jesus, it was a very different situation, but they are looking at Jesus and they hear this claim to authority and they start to watch and wonder, what is he going to do with it? What is he going to do with it? And anytime someone starts to claim this type of absolute authority in the world, we do have a sense of reservation and The quick assumption we have when we follow Jesus is that we understand that there is bad uses of authority, and we know what the problems are in the world, and so we know what Jesus must be about. We must know what he's going to do, because he's kind of told us, and we're saying, I know why you're coming, I know what you're going to do, and I know how things are going to work out. And so we kind of think, we know who Jesus is, we know what he's up to, we know what he's coming to do. And that was the perspective of many who saw Jesus enter in. They were thinking, okay, we know who the Messiah is. There is a sense in which we expect certain things. And this is probably the heart of one of our problems as people is that we look to God and we think we know exactly what he is going to do and how he's going to do it. And here in this text, we see that Jesus will use his authority in a very specific way, and it is used in a specific, specific way to establish his kingdom. And he has a very focused way in which he moves through his ministry to do this. And there's three things that we're going to start to see Jesus use his authority to do here, to start this work of establishing his kingdom. And this becomes very important for us as we listen and watch to what is Jesus all about? What is Jesus trying to accomplish So firstly, we see that Jesus uses his authority to teach us the full meaning of his law. He uses this authority to teach us the full meaning of his law. Let's do look back at verse 21 and 22. 
It says, And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority, not as the scribes. So there's not actually a lot said about what he said, but he was teaching in the synagogue. And this becomes pretty interesting to us because the first place he heads is not into the political sector where they might have expected to give them some freedoms once again to start to fight the things that they saw as problems, but he heads right into the synagogue and he starts to correct the teaching and starts to fill out the teaching. The things that they had known about God's law, about the scriptures, all of a sudden he starts to expound them in ways that no teachers had ever done before and he starts to use his authority right here in the midst of the people who had been worshiping God for so many years and trying to figure out what to do. And one of the main things it says, it's not a teaching like the scribes. So for us, we're like, I don't know what that teaching was like. And so one of the things that we know as we look at some of the other gospel accounts and some of the other ways uh, just in history, the way that the scribes would have been teaching, one of the things we recognize is the scribes had this responsibility to the law. They had this responsibility as if they were under the authority of Moses who had been given the law to keep the law, to interpret the law, to show God's people how to engage with it. And so this was different than probably the high priests who were interceding and, and letting uh, people come before God and do sacrifices on behalf of them. The scribes were in charge of keeping track of the law and the way that we should think and act in relationship to God, to one another, and his creation. So it's a pretty important role when we say, what is it that I'm allowed to do, not allowed to do? How can I live? And these scribes were highly revered in that sense. And as you can imagine, there's only 613 laws in the Jewish Old Testament. And so for any who know how laws can multiply and multiply in nations, you'll say that's not that many, really. Sounds like a lot, but really it's fairly few. And so there was a lot of interpretation that came into situations where they had to start to figure out what this looked like. And so as you can imagine, there were some people who had stricter interpretations of the law and some who had more lenient ones. And so if you got closer to the main city, Jerusalem, as you can imagine, this is the big city, things get much more strict and tightened down. And then as you get farther out into the surrounding regions like where we are right now in Galilee in this story, it would have got a little more loose in general. And all would agree on certain aspects of the law, but they would say, we don't know exactly what to do with these things. And so they would kind of engage the law to this degree, just trying to understand it, trying to make sense of it. And Jesus would identify kind of the way that they would do this in ways that were not very flattering at times. Matthew 23 Jesus talks about all the woes to the Pharisees. And you start to get this picture of them in which they use their interpretive skills and authority in ways that were oftentimes evasive in their reasoning. They would be fairly controlling. They would go after trivial pursuits to say, like, I'm not sure I want to deal with this because this might indict me. And so they'd kind of use their authorities in ways that made it possible for them to live a certain way. Or if they didn't understand it and didn't like it, you could see how you could easily shift things a little bit. And so oftentimes they would lack clarity, not be willing to advocate for certain people if they didn't really care about them. 
And they would build upon one another's interpretations and say, this is authoritative because so-and-so said so. And they have already abandoned what God's law had said. And so the people all of a sudden hear Jesus teaching. They're like, this is not like anything we've heard. There's clarity. There's a grasp of like the, the law might even have a purpose. It's not just an abstract set of rules that just says, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. We'll let you know what you can do when, when it comes down from on high. And yet Jesus enters in and you start to probably get this sense of, there's really some sense of reasoning behind this. This might actually cause life to go a little bit better for us if we were to submit to this type of law. You might get this picture that the law actually was built for human flourishing, not to just restrict and condemn and to entrap us. As we see that the law shows us who we are, who God is, how we relate to one another, these rules that God has set up, this is how I created my creation. You start to see that if Jesus created all of this, certainly he would have a grasp of the purpose and the intent of the law that would have been nothing that the scribes could have ever done even if they wanted to. So it's not necessarily to say that they could have even gotten there. But Jesus does enter in here very specifically, and even as he comes in, he's teaching on the Sabbath. And then a man with an unclean spirit walks in, and he shows his understanding and authority here in this narrative in a very specific way in which he doesn't ask, can I do this? He doesn't ask, does the law permit this? And oftentimes these different schools of thought on the interpretation of the law would have had different ways to engage this. And he said, only if his life is in danger can you actually do something like that on the Sabbath, especially in the synagogue. And so they would have you know, wanted to have a little discussion about it. And Jesus just acts. He just acts in the middle of this. And he's showing his authority. We don't have to ask whether we can heal him or not. This man needs to be freed. It is for compassion. It is for care. It is for human flourishing. So in Jesus, we start to see this teaching of the law that starts to rebuild this right understanding of the law, who we are actually meant to be, who God is, how we live in relationship to one another. And God is understanding our right relationship to these things. And we have to start to engage with it and start to say, like, do we understand where God is heading with this? Do we understand what God is doing with this? Am I already so established in my view of what God has called us to in this world through his scriptures? Do we say, I've already got it. I've already figured it out. This is the thing that this scripture is starting to get at, that Jesus is saying, in my authority, I will be unfolding these things. I am the one who gives law. I'm the one who created you. And it is to me that you come to understand these things. The law is a good starting place. One of the things you see even in the Decalogue or the Ten Commandments is that this gives us, you shall have no other gods before me. And he goes on and on with these ten different commandments. And you start to see Here's these things you shall not do. And later on, rightly, we started to understand, well, there's things that are forbidden, but there's also some implied things that are commanded. And ultimately, this is meant to show us, kind of, here's a framework how to live, and you're to live out of that. 
framework that starts to show us here's the rules, here's some of the ways that you were created, but here is how you start to pursue the fullness of life as God intended it to be lived. And when we say, here is the finality, this is certainly authoritative. But we actually need God himself, not just his written word. We actually need a relationship with God himself. These things are certainly authoritative, just as the law was authoritative. But they wanted to stop there and say, this is all that I'm allowing God to do. And this is certainly all that God could have ever said on the matter. And if we come to this place where we say, God, you cannot add anything to your word. Who are we to be able to say that type of thing? And it's not to say God will change anything in his word. It's not that the Ten Commandments ever move, ever change. It's not to say any of the law was bad or wrong. But God certainly understands how to direct us towards human flourishing in a much better way than we could ever understand. In fact, I think we will begin to understand these things in a fuller and fuller sense as our lives go on, as creation goes on, as the redemptive process continues to unfold. And I would even argue that when we get to heaven, there's probably enough about who Jesus is and the way he has created things that will keep us busy for all of eternity. But we could keep looking at the way that God created us and say, there's more. There's more here. It gets better and better. There's more complex layers to the things that I've seen in this world. There's more complex layers to the ways that God is going to allow me to live within his creation than I could ever even fathom. And to restrict him to a few things he said and say, this is all we're ever going to let you say about the matter, God. It's just foolishness. So we come before God with a humble heart saying, you are creator. I am your servant. That's one of the first things we see Jesus entering in, reestablishing this relationship of us to his law, saying these things are good, these things are right, but these are not the end. Let me open them up for you. Let me help you see a little bit of the broader purpose that allows you to live life to the fullest, not just to say, do not do a thing on the Sabbath, period. That was the finality of what the scribes would have taught around a situation like this. And Jesus starts to open it up and say, let me just show you <laughs> where this thing is meant to go. And so we should never arrive at a point where we think we have mastered God's word, mastered who God is. And the longer that we've walked with Jesus, actually the harder this becomes because you get slightly ahead of someone and you start to think, well, I know a lot about the Bible, therefore I don't need God as much. We don't actually mean to say that, but we kind of act that way. And it's kind of a fearful thing if you actually think about it. Because as we grow in maturity, it's actually very different than anything else you see in the world. And the rest of our context, you grow up as a child, you gain more and more independence. You grow up as a child, you become less and less dependent on your parents. And we learn that the more you do things well at work, the more freedoms you're given, the more authority you're given, it's more, the more ability you have to go and do things on your own. And yet, in our salvation, in our Christian faith, the more we grow, we shouldn't say, I have more authority. We, the more we should become humbled, become under the rule of God, to be completely dependent upon God. And it's completely reversed to say, 
I'm not just going back to Jesus every now and again to get a fill-up, <laughs> so to speak. But in fact, Jesus talks about this as if you are engrafted into the vine, being Jesus. That is mature Christianity to say, I need constant presence of Jesus and the Holy Spirit in my life. Yes, the word of God directs me, but I need the constant presence of Jesus to understand how to interpret this, how to engage the world in all the complex and various situations and nuances of my own sinful heart and the world around me. I need the fullness of who God is. So Jesus enters in to teach us here the full meaning of his law and start to reestablish this relationship between himself and his people is one of the first things he does with his authority. And the next one, he actually shows us an authority that is able to cleanse us. He shows us an authority that is able to cleanse us rightly. Let's look at verse 23 through 26. It says, And immediately... There was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. So right here you see this major conflict enter into the scenario in which Jesus is teaching on the law and all of a sudden this man with this unclean spirit comes in and he is wanting to engage with Jesus in this way. And this confrontation that Jesus faces with this unclean spirit, which is really a man possessed by a demon, here Mark shows us something very clearly about the authority of Jesus and what he will use his authority to do. And we remember we have certain expectations of how Jesus will use his authority and what we need. And right here, you almost have this illustration that's brought before us of a man with an extreme need. He can't do anything according to his own will. He is possessed by an unclean spirit. And we're, when looking at what stands in the way of the coming of the kingdom of God, Jesus is coming to establish this. We're confronted with this bigger problem than any of us would have recognized. They would have recognized, well, there's the Roman occupation. That's certainly a problem. We can't go to the temple and worship the way we want to worship. We can't live under the rule of God, under the law of God. This is the problem. If we just had freedom to live the way we were wanting to live, all of it would be right. If we just had the freedom to worship our God in the right way, it would all be good. And yet this man walks in, an image bearer of God, he certainly can't worship. He certainly can't enter into the synagogue. And when looking at this, it certainly stands in the way of him entering the kingdom of God. So we have to ask, What is this unclean spirit? We often think of things that have to do with Satan, demons, and things that are unclean in this world. We don't like them. In fact, we want to get them away as fast as possible. And this was actually kind of natural within the Old Testament. When there was something that was unclean that came up in the people of Israel, they would take it outside the camp. So what do you think that the teachers of the law would have suggested at this moment? They would have probably said, 
unclean spirit, man with an <laughs> unclean spirit. Let's take him out of the synagogue. Let this thing deal with itself. It'll run its course, and then eventually maybe he'll be clean. Maybe God will be gracious enough to cleanse him, but take him out. Uh, we don't know what to do with it. You start to recognize the authority that we need Jesus to exhibit here is one in which he can actually cleanse us. And a real problem that we have is actually within our own souls. Because you look at what Satan is. He is rebellious against God. When he was cast out of heaven, he rebelled against God. And the unclean spirits, they are this picture of absolute rebellion against who God is. And what is sin? It's want of conformity unto who God is, his law. It's not saying, I want to conform with your God, but rebel against your law. To do things I want to do. That's the heart of sin. All the things that we do, we are sinning by rebelling against our God and our creator. Say, I don't want to do what you want to do. I want to decide. And so you look at this unclean spirit. It's kind of the heart of Satan is to rebel against God. And now you have someone who wants to rebel against God right in the presence of Jesus. Saying, I can't follow you because I'm possessed by this spirit that actually wants to rebel against God. And what is our sin nature? It is something that wants, in a similar way, to rebel against God to that degree. I cannot follow God even if I want to, because my flesh is at war with God. That is the heart of sin. And we start to see this real conflict emerge right here. It's not a political one. Actually, it's a spiritual one. In my flesh, <laughs> if the kingdom of God was to come, no one could go to it, because we are all rebels against God, with an unclean spirit, so to speak. What does Jesus do here? It's not what the scribes would have done. The scribes would have said, let's just put it out. Set it out where we don't have to look at it. Uh, I remember uh, each time that Emily got pregnant, my wife got pregnant, one of the things that ended up happening, and this is kind of uh, a regular occurrence, is that things would end up in the fridge in Tupperware. And if I wasn't aware of them, they would just sit there. And Emily would open the door and be like, oh, that is going to be nasty. I'm not going to open that thing. It's going to stink. And she was not going to open that thing when she was pregnant because, like, her sense of smell was heightened. And so her only ability at that moment is like, I can identify it. I'm not getting rid of it. That's someone else. I don't care who it is. And it's going to stay there as long as it needs to. And in a similar way, this is the extent of what the law can do and what the scribes and Pharisees were able to do is just, yeah, that man's got a demon. That's a problem. That's about the extent of their authority. And when they walked down the street, many people would have recognized that these are teachers of the law. They would have even gave way to them, revered them, recognized them. And yet that's as far as their authority went, just the authority to identify and here Jesus enters in, and it's as if you look at a problem in which kind of like, you know, a mixture of water with food coloring. And we look at it and we say, I don't know how to unmix those things. We look at our sin nature. We say, I don't know how to get that out of my flesh. How are you going to get sin nature out of you? How are you going to get this rebellious attitude towards God out of who you are? It seems like it's just part of you now. And yet, Jesus reminds us, that's not who I created you to be. And he uses his authority, and he says with this demon, 
The scribes would have looked at it and said, we don't know how to get it out. <laughs> like, we, get, we might poke at a few things, pray and hope. And yet Jesus enters in and he says, come out. With that simple of a word, he uses authority. He says, come out. The demon wants to respond. He says, be silent. It's not a debate. <laughs> come out. You're done. And we sometimes think that there's like this spiritual warfare that the entire world is about. We think it's a political warfare, spiritual warfare. We want to make it about everything it's not. We think, can Jesus really handle uncleanness? Can Jesus really handle a demon? It's not to say demons are not powerful. So you think about demons. In Acts chapter 9, there was some disciples who were trying to figure out how to cast a demon out, and the demon responds to them, and he says, I know Paul, I know Jesus, who are you? And he overpowers them. And again, in Ephesians chapter 6, the apostle Paul commends to the believers, to the saints there, put on the full armor of God so that you can withstand Satan. To us, Satan is certainly powerful. To Jesus, it's a word. It's a word that he says. That is the level of authority that Jesus has in this situation. So he is able to enter in with all of the authority that God has given him in this situation and say, I am here to deal with this. I get to use all the authority in any way in which I wish. And I know for the kingdom to come, you have to be able to follow my law rightly. That is a primary thing. So we have to start to ask ourselves, what do we want Jesus to help us with? Is it political in nature? Is it dealing with oppression? Is it dealing with hardships? Is it dealing with difficulties in our life? Is it dealing with family situations? Not to say that these things aren't real problems and aren't difficult. But you start to hear where Jesus is heading. And you say, one of my biggest problems is sin, uncleanness, the fact that I have rebelled against God, the fact that my sin nature is there, what is the main thing that Jesus needs to work on? It is restoring my soul to a place where it can rightly worship him. And we say, do my goals align with God's goals for the world and my own soul and his church? And where do these need to start to come a little closer together? Do we really see our cleansing as being that's central to our need, our being made right, central to being our need. We pray to God and say, Lord, would you cleanse this aspect of my soul far before we say, would you change my situation? Those are things we come before God and say, Lord, I need you to cleanse my soul. And you see how easy that aspect of it was for him to say, come out of him. It's not to say that all of redemption, it is a miracle to see all that he's accomplished. But where he starts right here, I don't think the political situation was a problem for him. Demons are not a problem for him. Sin is the real problem he's after, and he's going to deal with it in its entirety. And we start to hear, who is Jesus? Who am I supposed to be? And we start to say, Am I willing to follow him there? And the disciples, one of the things that's really interesting 
about who they were and what they were doing. They, in the Gospel of Mark, it actually tells us very little about what they knew about Jesus as they followed. And I think there's some intentionality to way, the way that Mark is laid out. It's almost as if they engage with Jesus. He says, follow me. And they're like, we don't know who you are, at least in the Gospel of Mark, but we'll follow you. And even in the other accounts, you have to know that they probably did not know very much about what Jesus was about, what he was doing. They knew that there's something about him they're willing to follow. And that is kind of the heart of our discipleship, not to say you need to have this level of knowledge before following Jesus. It's to say, I trust you, Jesus. Now I'm willing to learn about you. Who are you? What are you about? What are you trying to accomplish in this world? What are you trying to accomplish in my own heart, in our community? What are you trying to do with this world? And we're allowing ourselves to constantly be shaped and formed in this. Who do you say I am? Who do you say you are? Those are things we continue to learn throughout our lives. The big question here then becomes, as we continue on in our passage in Mark, how are we seeing all that Jesus has done here and what he chose to do with his authority? How do we see it? So firstly, we see Jesus uses his authority to teach us the full meaning of his law, and he uses his authority to cleanse sin rightly. And fully out of our hearts for the coming of the kingdom. And thirdly, Jesus uses his authority for his fame. Jesus uses his authority for his fame. And this is where we kind of have a knee-jerk reaction. We say, I'm not sure that I like <laughs> even God saying that. I'm not sure how comfortable I am with that. Let's read verses 27 through 28 again. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this, a new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. And here you at least hear that when Jesus acts in all of his authority, the most natural response is to say, That's amazing. Is that my God? Without even knowing they're saying it, they're saying, is that him? I want people to know about this. They start to proclaim his glory. They start to proclaim his faith just naturally. And you can imagine some of the response would be, can he really say that? Is that really right? Especially the scribes would be like, who is this guy? Can he really claim that? And oftentimes we hear these claims to authority. We see these claims to authority exhibited and we say, is that something that can really be said? And Jesus is showing his care for his people here. He shows compassion on a man who walks into the synagogue possessed. He shows a care for people's understanding to say, I want you to understand. I'm not keeping you in the dark. I want you to have a full picture of who God is and what he's about in this world. And he goes on again and again to show compassion and care for his people. But he is not saying, you are just your happiness is the end goal. Just your freedom is the end goal. Very striking. He actually starts to double down on this idea that his fame is the end goal. And you can start to recognize this conflict that's emerging in the Gospel of Mark. That there are these men with lots and lots of authority in their Jewish culture. And Jesus is now just challenging that. And this is one of the main 
aspects of the gospel that we have to get to understand in our own hearts that there is a challenge to our own authority that the gospel brings in. For God to be God, it challenges our sin nature and rebellion against him to say, can you really say you have absolute authority? And down the line we start to go in our own flesh and sin to say, I don't know if I actually want the full authority of God in this world. I'd like a democracy, or I'd just like freedom, or a God who is just benevolent and good and allows us to do whatever we want. That's what I really want. And here Jesus enters in, and it's for his fame, or starts to, and we say, is that really who my God is? But then you read scripture, and again and again, God actually doubles down on this, and he does not back down. Isaiah 48:11 is a good example of this. Jesus, God in speaking about salvation, about dealing with sin. He's saying, why will he do these things and redeem us? He says, for my own sake I will do it. My glory I will not give to another. If you hear that from God, you start to say, like, how can he say that? If I heard any other person in this world say that, it would sound evil, awful, vindictive. There's no way that that can be good. And in our human perspective, we have a lot of baggage with people who claim absolute authority. We have to recognize that we do. Even thinking back to Kim Jong-un. People of North Korea certainly have some bad perspectives of people who claim absolute authority. And as they interviewed some of the people who talked about this, it was not everything it was promised to be once he came into power. It was not good. In fact, it was just the same thing again, this absolute totalitarian regime. Some of them, the stories are absolutely horrific of what you hear. Someone with absolute power starts to do with it when they have sin in their heart. It's just heartbreaking. Some of the survivors who had made it out and got away from this, they start to speak about it. And they said, just talked about it in this way. They said, if you speak out against the system you'll immediately be arrested. And if you do something wrong, then three generations of your family will be punished. In 2009, I had heard there was, a young, there was going to be some kind of coup launched in Chongjin and that all of the people involved were executed immediately. There was a story going around that Kim Il-sung had asked Kim Jong-un to get him an apple. And Kim Jong-un asked for a shovel because he wanted to bring the whole tree to him. And there's like this dissonance that starts to emerge in people's understanding of like, he's not a benevolent leader. Because they go on and they say, we had the education sessions when we would go back to the main building and into big big room where the portraits of the leaders were. And everyone had to bow down and buy bunches of flowers and lay it in front of the portraits. They would, then, there, then there would be a speech by the boss in this construction company who was a party member. We would hear about how Kim Jong-un had done this and that, and he was working so hard for the party and for the nation and for the people. And I believed it up until Kim Jong-un era, but this exaggeration was just too much. It just didn't make sense. The elites are treated nicely because they are made sure that the system stays stable, but for everyone else, it is a reign of terror. Absolute reign of terror. And this is our sin nature fleshed out, when we are given absolute authority, 
you start to see this. And we hear absolute authority, and that's what we think. And even though there's maybe hope that we just need freedom, we just need the freedom to live rightly, we think maybe it'll just turn out well. And yet what you hear here is an absolute authority that demands everything from its people, demands everything from its people. Just give us our freedom. And we often think, well, there's this man possessed by a demon. Just give him his freedom. Let him be free to worship you, God, and he will. And yet we start to see, is that really true, actually? And here in, G- in, in Mark, we see this coming of Jesus and coming in full authority. And he's not coming just to make us free, but it is an absolute takeover. The coming of the kingdom of God, and God will be the ruler of heaven and earth, and he is in absolute authority. And we're faced with something that we're not necessarily sure we're comfortable with. And yet, God operates very differently when he has absolute authority. He starts to show he has compassion, care, love, and he leaves his throne, comes and enters in in the incarnation. It says, God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Familiar verse to many of us in the church. And we see this idea of love that is fleshed out even fuller by this creator with absolute authority. In Philippians chapter 2, Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name that is above every name. And here we have this picture all of a sudden of this king who doesn't demand the lives of his servants, but gives his own. Doesn't demand everything from them. But actually, things are kind of flipped. And one thing that's really important for us to see, the more God seeks his own fame, the more we receive blessing. The more God seeks his own fame, the more we receive blessing. How is that possible? Even the demons recognize he is the Holy One of God. He is completely righteous. He is absent of sin. He is absent of selfishness. He is the perfect picture of the law lived out in its entirety of who God intended him to be. And you see, when someone is really that holy, him having absolute power is not a bad thing, but it's a good thing. It brings absolute blessing. Proverbs 11.10 starts to indicate this just a little bit. It says, when it goes well with the righteous, the city rejoices. When it goes well with the righteous, the city rejoices. When it goes well with the wicked, the city probably weeps then, as you see in North Korea. But with God being in absolute authority, we see the blessing will be so much more than we can handle. It will be, Lord, no more. You've given too much. Lord, we can't take anymore. Anytime Jesus enters in and does something more for his people, his fame and his glory expands and it is just broadcasted 
farther and farther, and we say, if God wants more fame, I will give it to him. Because every time God gets more fame, it means good things are coming. In fact, I don't want this to be about my freedom anymore. I don't want this to be about the things that I want. In fact, I don't want God to even fix the things I thought he should fix. I want him to do the things he thinks he should do. And I'm going to follow him where he's heading because I don't want the things I want anymore because I know I need to be cleansed of my own sin. I need a righteous Savior. I need a righteous God, one who is willing and worthy of all of our praise to lead us. And oftentimes we can look at the world and we have very specific opinions about what needs to happen next. Very specific opinions about what needs to happen in our nation, in our communities, in our schools, in our lives. And we can say, Lord, I know what needs to happen here. If you would just give me the reins for a second or give us our freedoms to do the things you've called us to do, things would be all right. And in fact, those are important things and God understands those things. God understands that people in power often are wicked In fact, they not often are. They are always wicked. They are desperately in need of God's cleansing and rebellious against him. What we need is the kingdom of God to come. And that is a position of humility for us to take, to say, I want you to be in charge, absolute authority, complete control of all of my mind, my heart, my soul, my family, my kids, my work, my nation. I want your kingdom come. In fact, I don't even care about the flourishing of any of the things that seem like they matter so much. I care about your kingdom above all else. And at times there is a distance between these things. And we need to not just ignore them. We need to recognize my heart doesn't necessarily want the things God tells me I should want. It's part of discipleship. He's laying out before us to say, Lord, would you bring my heart in line with what you're about? Would you help me to see it? Because we do have God's word. We don't have absolute clarity on everything we should do in every situation. But there is enough to start to follow God faithfully. To say, I will be a faithful member in the kingdom of God, whatever that looks like. Whatever role he gives me, whatever... He's going to, in, in, in any way that he's going to accomplish it in this world, I trust him. And if he is an absolute authority, we say this is under his rule. It doesn't mean we don't care about what's going on, but we start to say, how do I come under his rule? And at this point in the story of Mark, it's showing us just a little bit of who Jesus is with those who are watching. We start to see it beginning to unfold and give us direction towards the core of everything that Jesus is starting to deal with, our understanding of how we relate to him and his law, our understanding of what the law's purpose is, understanding of how God's creation was intended to be, our understanding of our problem. We start to follow him and say, all right, (laughs) where are you taking us, Jesus? Where are you taking us? I'm willing to follow And there is a correcting of our hearts that is needed regularly, daily, yearly. No matter how many years you've walked with Jesus or even if you haven't walked with Jesus, there is a correcting of your hearts and your attitude and your perspective of who God is. And to think that that's not the case 
you're going to be missing out on a whole lot. And the good news is that God will do these things in us. He continues to work these things out. Um, and our rebellious hearts often fight against it and say, Lord, I don't want to go where you're going. Don't you see what's going on over here? And you'd see this in the disciples over and over again. They'd say, don't you see what really is at stake here? Jesus, don't you see where we should really be going? We want to say, come with me, Jesus. And Jesus is saying, no, gently pulling us along, saying, this is where we're heading. The kingdom of God is coming. That's not something up for debate. This is absolute. And we start to hear in that passage of Philippians chapter 2, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And there will be an act at one point, we will all recognize this absolute authority of who Jesus is, that he is king and he is here. And one of the things we have to decide is, will we follow him now? Will we be willing to say, Lord, I want you to cleanse sin in my heart, this rebellious nature, and accept it. And there is indeed good news coming with the coming of Jesus and good news with Jesus taking his role as king. So let's do look and long for that in our own hearts even this morning. Let's do pray.